Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. She's Stephanie McNeil, and you are watching AM to DM. How's it going, Stephanie? It's going good. It's Tuesday, right? I had to like mentally in my brain be like, wait, is it Wednesday? No, it's Tuesday. But it's Tuesday. It's a good day to be here. And it's a good day to be here. We're far from the weekend, but fortunately, any second now, there could be a new Solange album that's going to drop. I know, it's like we're on the end of our seats. It could be right now, it could be two weeks from now, hopefully it could be like not a few months from now, we don't know. New music, any moment now. Well, BuzzFeed News entertainment reporter Sylvia O'Bell, one of our faves, obviously tweeted, I love how the Knowles sisters continue to tag team slay us. Beyonce has been off tour for like a week and here comes Solange's foot to our necks with a new album rollout. I mean, all of Sylvia's tweets are so incredibly amazing, always. That is a really funny tweet to me because it just it's a very violent imagery. But you know what? I, I accept the Knoll sisters and, uh, and what they're about to do to us. And uh, that tweet was in response to a New York Times profile about the artist that teased her new album with the tweet, on the eve of her next album, Solange has hybridized her many talents, music, dance, activism, aesthetics, to inspire a new model for the modern pop artist. And it is so true. She's incredibly multifaceted. She won a Grammy in 2017 uh, for Cranes in the Sky. Uh, and she's had exhibits in the Guggenheim. She's now choreographing. So she really does it all. And I am so looking forward to whatever new music she's going to put out soon. Yeah, I was reading, I read that story while I was getting ready this morning, and then I was listening to Cranes in the Sky, so I'm just in a very, like, Solange, like, mood right now. Like, her music is so soothing to me, just, like, her voice is so, like, I don't know, like, ethereal, um, that I just feel like it really put me in a good headspace to start. It's Even really, though it's a, it's a sad song, but... And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, her music is beautiful, and I am of the generation, and so are you, where uh, we saw Solange really, you know, grow up. She put out her first album, I think, when she was, like, 18 or 17, or pretty young, maybe even younger than that. And, you know, now she's just 32 years old and uh, doing big things. And, um, of course, the New York Times described her uh, last album, uh, A Seat at the Table, yoked artistry to activism with its piercing inquiry into race and identity. And, uh, and so it's just really incredible to kind of see her bridge uh, all of these different art forms as well. So I mean, don't forget her first hit single ever, the Proud Family theme song, <laughs> with the music video with Destiny's Child. I remember that. Do you remember that? Uh, I, I, it's not coming to the front of my mind at this very moment. Well, I was a fan even back then. Well, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Who do we want to? Who do you want to see drop a surprise album? Tweet in using the hashtag AM2. Solange, drop it. Please, please. <laughs> drop it now. All right, well, while we're waiting, we have to get into the story from BuzzFeed News. We published a wild investigative story this morning, and the headline kind of says it all. American mercenaries were hired to assassinate politicians in the Middle East. BuzzFeed investigative reporter Anne Rostin spoke on the record with two members of the company that carried out this mercenary mission. Aram joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Now, can you set the stage for us first? Who were these mercenaries targeting and why? So they were hired by the UAE, by the United Arab Emirates, which is one of the, the leaders of the, uh, of the coalition fighting in Yemen against the Houthi uh, rebels there. And they were hired by the UAE to kill Islamist politicians. There's a party in the UAE that is, uh, I'm sorry, there's a party in Yemen that's opposed to what the UAE is doing there. And the UAE, um, according to these people, according to these these uh, these mercenaries I spoke to, um, hired people to uh, kill uh, to to assassinate these these politicians, these Islamist politicians. They're part of a group called Al Islah, which is well known. It's part of the political establishment in Yemen, and um, they've been dying off. There's been about they've been being killed. There's about two dozen 
assassinations of the uh, party members and leaders since 2015 or so. This story is so incredibly stunning that American mercenaries would be involved in something like this. And to top that off, you actually obtained drone footage of one of these incidents. Can you kind of explain what happened there? So the key incident that we could really corroborate was what uh, was an attempt in December 2015 to kill the Aden-based leader of Al-Islam, this political party. And, and this was a man who, who was, had been quoted in the papers, had been quoted once in the Washington Post, once in the Financial Times. He was the target. He'd been uh, uh, picked by the UAE to, uh, for, as, a, as a target for the assassination uh, attempt. So we, we, got, we obtained the drone video. There was a drone um, flying about 4,000 feet or so above this operation. They, the, the mercenaries, three Americans and one uh, Hungarian-Israeli, the, the uh, mercenary, the leader of this company, he, uh, they arrived there at night and they got out of their, of their, their SUV. You can see it all on the videos. You should watch it. It's, it's extraordinary. They, they, it's an, all in infrared. So you see them as you, you see them clearly, even though it's nighttime. And uh, you can see how one carries a satchel or some sort of bomb and brings it to the front of the building. We were told by the, by the I was told by the mercenaries I talked to that, that the plan was to have this bomb, put, put this bomb there and, and, and explode it, detonate it and kill everybody in this, in this front office. Um, you can see them. It's a very rapid operation. They go in, they try to plant the bomb. There's some shooting. It's unclear what they shoot at, what they're firing at. And then they quickly run, three of them wanted to run a uh, um, military vehicle called an MRAP, a mine-resistant vehicle. And one of them runs into the other one. And just then the bomb go, goes off. And then they've booby-trapped uh, booby the SUV that they arrived in. That blows up. So there's a lot of confusion in the streets. And this attack... Uh, it made the news at the time. It was a major incident because it sort of set the tone that Al-Islam was about to be targeted. Nobody ever knew that this was, being, this was conducted by American mercenaries on the ground in Yemen. And you, know, and you mentioned the mercenaries and their leader earlier. Uh, tell us a little bit about who they are, Isaac Gilmore and uh, Abraham Golan. So um, Isaac Gilmore is an ex-Navy SEAL. He spent, I think it was nine years in the Navy SEALs, and he, he had to leave because of a uh, an accident, a, a mishap in the SEALs. He, he left, he got an honorable discharge, but he, he left the SEALs in 2011. Abraham Golan is an, is an extraordinary individual who's born in Hungary, spent a lot of time in France, is uh, clearly Israeli, has major Israeli connections. And he's the one who really runs the company and facilitated this entire operation. It was a bizarre, uh, that was brokered, the whole operation, if you read it, as you see, it, it was brokered by a, a Palestinian exile who lives in the UAE. The UAE is, of course, this very wealthy, oil-rich nation, uh, a tiny place with very few people, but very, very powerful. Um, the, the Palestinian former politician, Mohammed Dahlan, lives there now, and he's an advisor to the, to the crown prince. And he's the one who negotiated this entire mercenary operation, as you'll see in the story. The big question on my mind, and I think that probably is on the minds of many people reading this story, is a rather simple one. How can Americans do this? Is this legal? How can Americans carry out assassinations on foreign soil without, it seems, any repercussions? It's really complicated. I do not, I'm not saying I understand it entirely either. We've reported previously about... Um, an American uh, former colonel, an American army colonel, who left the army and then went to the UAE and he calls himself a general now. So in a similar circumstance, he's not actually fighting on the ground. He's not 
shooting people, but he's a commander of a whole military branch there. So it's not unprecedented to see this. And if you look at it another way, Americans will sometimes join the Israeli Defense Forces. They could join the French Foreign Legion or, or other military forces overseas. So this, I, I, I guess the theory is if they do that for idealism, patriotism, whatever their, their doctrine, whatever their, their reasons are, if they do it for money, is that legally different? Because here they're doing it solely for money. They're also seeing it, as they see it, the UAE is a very close ally of the United States. Many people consider the UAE the United Arab Emirates, simply like a U.S. proxy over there. So these people can say, well, we're doing almost what a U.S. proxy wants to wants us to do. Now, uh, this story comes as the world has its eyes on the role Saudi Arabia played in the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi and how slow the U.S. government has been to respond. How does your story complicate what we know and don't know about what happened to him? I'm not sure it opens um, new um, sort of a new perspective on it, except that we now understand that these Gulf monarchies do hire people to kill. I think that we can accept that it's possible they view assassinations, at least in, in Yemen, they view them as part of their part of their, their toolbox. That's so incredibly stunning. I would encourage anyone watching us right now to please read your article. It goes way more into detail about all of this stuff, and it is incredibly fascinating and incredibly surprising that Americans are doing this. Well, thank you so much, Aram. Thank you. Stunning story. Well, on to another story that I saw all over my timeline yesterday. Here's a tweet from New York Times reporter Eliza Shapiro. Something every New Yorker should know. There are 114,659 homeless students in our city. New York's biggest homeless crisis on record is getting worse. That's a uh, student crisis. Eliza published a story yesterday on this crisis and joins us now. Hi. Hi, thanks for joining us. Uh, now, Eliza, do we have any idea why the number of homeless kids in the city continues to grow? So it's growing alongside uh, a homelessness crisis that has really exploded since the 2008 recession. And we're still seeing, obviously, the impact of it. it the homelessness crisis in general has grown a lot since Mayor Bill de Blasio took office in 2014. And obviously, these are the most vulnerable victims of a, a broader homelessness crisis that is just beginning to grow as the city wrestles with an affordable housing housing crisis and struggles to build enough shelters and build enough other temporary housing to contain homeless families in particular. And what has Mayor Bill de Plazio said about this, if anything? Uh, you know, he said it's really challenging. We're working on it. But um, the city has has earmarked a relatively modest amount of money uh, specifically for this population, about $16 million this year, but the entire Department of Education budget is over $32 billion this year. So we're talking about really a tiny fraction of the pie that the city could be spending on these kids that they haven't yet. And I think it's sort of a moment of reckoning right now as this number becomes more catastrophic year after year for both the mayor and the New York City Schools Chancellor, and frankly, there's a lot of really rich people in New York City who run philanthropic organizations and are big donors, for everyone to sort of come together and think of, of solutions here. Mostly the city, but also the philanthropic organizations. 
You mentioned uh, that this number is catastrophic, and uh, I certainly uh, was just stunned that it's over 100,000 students. How does this figure compare with uh, the number of homeless kids in uh, other cities across the country? I, I would believe that it's the lar largest current student homelessness crisis in America. That's partially because New York City is by far the largest public school system in America. We have about 1.1 million kids. But just looking at percentage-wise, not even just by the numbers, I think Chicago has about 5% student homelessness. LA has less than 4% student homelessness. Those are still crises, really, but that's not anything approaching what New York City is dealing with right now. I would say it's probably the most severe crisis, both by just plain numbers and by percentage in the entire country. I want to read a tweet from one of the many people who was struck by your story yesterday. John Gifto said, when I think my life with a toddler is stressful, I'm reminded of many NYC families without a stable home, living in shelters, working to feed their families and find way into something more stable, all while trying to create a sense of normalcy for their children. Eliza, your story talked a lot about the impact being homeless has on a child in school. In school, Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's enormous. I mean, before kids even get to the school door, some have to travel on our pretty broken New York City subway system from Brooklyn to the Bronx, multiple boroughs, hour plus commutes. And that means that um, homeless kids are very often either extremely late for school or miss a lot of schools. I think on average last year, homeless kids in New York City missed six weeks of school because it's just so hard to get to the door. And then you're talking about other basic needs being met. Housing, schools wanna provide three meals a day to these kids, have food pantries for these kids, give them coats in the winter and help wash their clothes the rest of the year with washing machines in school. Just the basics are such a challenge before we even get to, can you read, can you do math, can you, right? Can you pass a state math exam, which many of these kids struggle to do? I mean, the challenges are just huge before you even get to what kids are actually supposed to be doing in school, which is reading, writing, doing math. Yeah, you mentioned just the barriers to even be able to uh, get to focus on school uh, you know, seem really big and frankly, uh, insurmountable almost. Um, yeah. But uh, what can our viewers do uh, if they feel moved by this story to you know, uh, help support some of these folks? Absolutely. I mean, I think spreading awareness right now is a huge, um, a huge, uh, something we all really have to do. I think people were shocked by the numbers. I was shocked by the numbers and I've been following them for five years. I would say if people are passionate, they should urge their elected officials to take a more active role in solving, addressing this crisis. I think a lot of elected officials have kind of thrown up their hands and said, we're doing our best, but it's so challenging. The problems are insurmountable, insurmountable. The city can do more and philanthropic organizations can do more and individuals can do more, you know, giving to the Coalition for the Homeless or other homeless advocacy organizations or just reaching out to advocacy organizations and seeing how people can help individually. I think though the onus is, is really on the city to say, here's what you can do to help beyond calling us, bugging us, you know, saying you care about this issue. Here's where you can, here's where you can send your money. Because I think that's still very much emerging right now. We don't really know the answer to that question fully yet. We don't really know the answer. Well, thank you so much, Eliza. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
And coming up, Stephanie sits down with John Batiste. But up next, it's cold outside, but hot in here because it's time for Fire Tweet. Maybe it's cold outside. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that a lot of people were moved by uh, Eliza Shapiro's story about homelessness in New York City. And uh, Cine Martinez tweeted, 100% homelessness is more present than we want to acknowledge. Yeah, I think it's really easy as New Yorkers to get very caught up in our own lives in the city and how, you know, we think we struggle in this city to make rent, to get everything done. And then the reason why I wrote in that dad's tweet into the script was because it really put things into perspective where he's saying, I think my life is so hard, but you know, I'm raising my child in a home. There are kids who, you know, don't even have homes. So I think it's I think it's good to always acknowledge like, wow, obviously it's a struggle for everyone living in this city. It's even harder for people who don't have the means that we do. And there's so many easy ways to impact your community too. I mean, there are so many volunteer organizations that don't take up too much time. There's little fundraisers you can go to online. There's just so many ways that we can give back to this city. So I don't know. Amen. And Eliza outlined some of them, so uh, be sure to uh, check out the story. I think that we tweeted it out as well. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, time for fire tweets. You ready? Yeah, let's do this. I love this tweet. Sarah Valentine. The temperature went from 90 to 55 like it saw a state trooper. Yeah, it what is up? really did. Uh, this happens every single year in New York City. Who doesn't know that this is going to happen? I was, like, walking around complaining. It's, like, 80 degrees in October, and I was like, but tomorrow there's going to be a blizzard, so I might as well enjoy this humid, uh, damp heat while it lasts before it's just freezing. Yeah, I hate the winter so much. This is the time of year where I am like, oh, why did I leave my hometown again? San Diego, California. Uh, where it's like, <laughs> what, spring all year long? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Michaela Oakland. I don't get why girls would ever try to compliment themselves by saying they're one of the boys. So you drink beer and have a shitty sense of humor? Weird flex, but okay. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't get along with girls. I just like guy friends. Um, internalized misogyny is real. I feel like one of the guys was like a cool thing to say back in college when uh, we all wanted to downplay our femininity um, because, uh, you know, coolness and masculinity, we could get into it. I won't take us to a gender studies one-on-one right now, but I could. <laughs> I'm really hoping that the next generation, like, you know, our, our children, our peers' children, do not think things like this. Like, little tiny uh, ways of thinking like this tweet represents are things that I feel like could be easily eradicated by the millennial parenting. Maybe they could say, you know, I'm just one of the girls. Yeah, so. exactly. That's what the guys are going to say from now on. All right. Zoe. Zoe. If you don't retweet yourself, how the hell are you gonna retweet somebody else? Can I get an amen? All right, Zoe, while your tweet is fire, I don't agree with you. I do not retweet You don't myself. think that uh, retweeting yourself is the ultimate way of showing self-love? No. I think the ultimate way of showing self-love <laughs> is taking little breaks from Twitter. Obviously, I love I, Twitter. I'm on Twitter right now. But taking that little 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. break is really good for myself. I think you can definitely tell that somebody has uh, a fair share of self-confidence by retweeting themselves. Sure. <laughs> That's one thing. That's an understatement. <laughs> Weasel babe, Triscuits are the perfect snack for anyone who has ever wanted to eat wicker furniture. Cosine. Oh my God. Do you like eating wicker wooden furniture? Because you would love 
a Triscuit. Triscuits are so nasty. And then they like crumble all over you. My mom always buys Triscuits. I should ask her why she always buys Triscuits. They're like the worst cracker. Well, okay, so I don't mind Triscuits with a little bit of cheese on it. So maybe I'm someone who enjoys eating wicker furniture and I accept it. Yeah, but why why eat it on a Triscuit when you could just eat it on like a wheat thin or something? Or a saltine. Yeah, exactly. This is a debate for another time. Okay, tweet us, ha tweet us your Triscuit opinions. <laughs> Hashtag AMTD. Okay. All right, ready? ready for the tweet of the day? <laughs> Megan Lewis. Oh, poor Megan. Three years ago, a cute guy I worked with wanted to give me a fist bump. I thought he was pretending to hold an invisible microphone, so I leaned forward and said, Hello? Stephanie, will you fist bump me? Hello? <laughs> I love I, that one. <laughs> I can just picture that and like, oh God, Megan, I'm so sorry. Also, so I feel like one of the reasons why that tweet is so funny is because, I mean, for me, I feel like I've been there when someone is like gesturing towards you or trying to like shake your hand and you just do something that is completely socially unacceptable. Or when, like when someone so like, it resonates. When you like go in for a handshake and they go in for a hug and then you're, and then like, you're oh, like, oh, and they're uh, like, oh wait, you don't have to hug me. And then I'm like, oh no, it's fine, I'll hug you. Then you're like, did I hug you too hard? Like, was yeah. that too familiar? I don't know. Well, anyways, that's enough. Up next, we're going live from the district, so stay tuned. More fun. Enough hugging talk. Okay, so we're supposed to go to the district right now, but I just love, I want to talk to you, Alex. I love that everyone's tweeting out their Trisket opinions. Trisket We've excited a debate. Trisket gate 2018, keep them coming. I love to debate a cheese plate. <laughs> That's my favorite debate in the world. Okay, on to Washington, D.C. <laughs> we're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter, Lysandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, how are you? Good. Lisa, do you like Trisket? <laughs> Um, I do actually. Okay. All right. We got we got one for the Triscuits in the in the room. All, All right. right. We got it. Well, uh, let's get into it. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Matt Berman. It sucks to be an ambitious young Democrat in the House, so the caucus is bleeding talent. Lisa, why exactly does it suck to be a young Democrat in the House? Well, it sucks to be a young Democrat in the House because the party is kind of having a broader discussion about generational change right now, and Democrats tend to prioritize experience. So they have a whole structure beyond the fact that the people filling their top positions have been there for a while. Um, they, they have structural issues that sort of allow, make it difficult for Democrats to move up. Also, I don't know if you can tell, but it's pretty empty behind me in the Capitol right now because all of the lawmakers are off campaigning ahead of the midterm. So it's like kind of spooky right now. Like, I miss them, but I don't miss them. So <laughs> just context for where, what point of the year we're at. That's really funny. It's a ghost town in Congress right now. Okay, so Nancy Pelosi has been the leader of House Democrats for 15 years. I think I was talking to someone earlier. I remember being like a sophomore in high school and her becoming the leader of the House again. So why do you think Democrats are so apt to hold on to these positions and not kind of create more leadership opportunities for the younger generation? 
Uh, well, like I said earlier, Democrats really like to prioritize the experience. And Nancy Pelosi is the one who comes up a lot because she's been in her position for more than a decade, right? Um, but this is a broader point. Like, like I was saying, there's a wider discussion about how these younger Democrats can be um, can be relevant when when people, and especially younger voters, are looking for for representatives who who look and act and and speak more like them. Um, again, for Nancy Pelosi specifically, there's no heir apparent, so she's the question mark that comes up a lot. When is she going to want to leave? Um, and who's going to replace her? Who do they have to replace her? Um, but but it really comes down to Democrats just really being comfortable with having seniority up at the top, at least at this point. You mentioned this is come down to, comes down to Democrats being comfortable um, with this structure. But uh, what about Republicans? Uh, do they also prioritize leadership in the same way? They have a very different system from Democrats. So Democrats use seniority, like I said, to fill high-ranking committee spots, for example. Republicans term limit them, and that's sort of how and you that's sort of how you end up with the younger leaders. Uh, like for example, Speaker Paul Ryan, right? Who's who's a younger guy? Uh, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, um, and that's those are two specific examples that one senator um, actually pointed to. So the senator that I spoke with had served in the House, and he told me that when he decided to run for the Senate, he was at the point where he was going to have to decide if he wanted to stick around for 20 years and maybe become like a chairman of a committee um, or head out to the exits and, and run for Senate. So that's what a lot of Democrats are saying is that because of these difficulties moving upward within the caucus, um, some, some Democrats are actually saying that they're losing talent and they're heading elsewhere and running for governor, um, running for Senate. And I, I do want to point out that this house has always been seen as a as a training ground for other office, um, but it, it is striking at a time when maybe Democrats are about to take back the house here in 2018 um, that they're saying they're losing some of their better members. Is any of this resonating with the old guard Democrats? You know, you cited a lot of people who seem to be frustrated by this trend. Now that so many people are leaving the house for greener pastures, do you think they might change their ways a little bit? I think the old guard definitely um, understands that this is a conversation that's happening, and they have taken some steps. After the 2016 election, they added new leadership positions, um, and, and they're, they're trying to bring uh, newer Democrats to the table in ways that they can. But the other thing is that we're living in an environment where maybe being the chair of a committee isn't, how, isn't um, the most relevant position that you have. Maybe it's just being on cable news and being active on Twitter, and that's how you come across as, as a big name. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. There's so many other outlets now for people to become a household name rather than just heading up a committee or whatever position in the house. Lisa, you just tweeted this. New from Pearlberg and me, Washington Democrats think Michael Avenatti is a nuisance. He thinks they're out to get him. Okay, so let's start with Democrats. Do they think Avenatti helped get Brett Kavanaugh confirmed? So the Democrats that I spoke with don't actually think that Avenatti was the the breaking point that that um, made them fail in their effort to stop Kavanaugh from from being confirmed to the Supreme Court. Um, but they do point to him as a convenient foil for Republicans to have used and to sort of paint all of the allegations about Kavanaugh uh, as being political in nature. Now, did uh, Avenatti contact any members of Congress, uh, you know, during the hearings about this? 
He did not. He, so uh, the way that Avenatti approached um, bringing forward his his client's allegations, which very briefly, um, he was representing Julie Swetnick, who said that she'd been present um, at parties where, um, well, just uh, basically there were comments. She had a sworn affidavit um, that that said that she had seen. Kavanaugh and Mark Judge at parties, um, including uh, spiking drinks and just a bunch of inappropriate conduct. This was a sworn affidavit that that uh, Avenatti was representing. Um, so, anyway, that's that's sort of where we are with with the situation. Obviously, Kavanaugh went on to get confirmed, um, but Democrats did not appreciate his involvement because the reason we know Avenatti is that he's a very political um, guy who's representing Stormy Daniels. So you you tweeted that Avenatti thinks the Democrats are out to get them. So can you expand on that a little bit? What did it, what does he think that they are saying about him? Yeah, he's saying so. The other thing that we know about Avenatti, right, is that he maybe wants to run for president. Um, and he's saying that people who are blaming him for Kavanaugh getting confirmed are um, just using him as a scapegoat uh, so they can nominate some schlocky, I think was the word he used, uh, Democrat uh, as, as their nominee in 2020 against Trump. Well, I am uh, not emotionally prepared for the Michael Avenatti 2020 campaign at all. Yeah, it doesn't seem like if he wants to be the Democratic nominee for president, he's really going about it the right way, considering he's pissed off a ton of Democrats in the in Congress. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for shining yeah. light on those two cool stories. Thank you for having me. Up next, we're going to give you some tips on how to be alone. Very interesting. Yep, good to know how. Lane Moore tweeted, I wish there was a cool way to say, hey, you haven't texted me back. Do you not like me anymore? Or do you like me, but you're busy? Or do you have deep emotional problems and this is just about those and not me? Just let me know because this is killing me, haha. But it is for real. The ever relatable and talented Lane Moore, author of the forthcoming book, How to Be Alone, joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. God, I'm, I'm just seeing all my issues on that tweet, <laughs> but it's fine. They're there. All right, well, listen, I want to talk about your forthcoming book. Yeah. Uh, why did you want to tackle the topic of being alone? Yeah, um, so I have been super alone since I was a kid. I raised myself and all of these things and um, just felt like nobody could relate to that. I didn't feel like I could relate to anybody else. And then I started writing a little bit on the internets about um, spending the holidays alone and being alone and things like that. And people were like, oh, I don't really have a good family situation either. I didn't have any family either. And I was like, we are many. Like there are a lot of us and no one's writing for us. So that's why I was like, okay. And then also, you know, so much of what I do in comedy and music and everything is about how we connect or don't connect. And I really think that so many of the issues that everybody has about dating and friendships and just in all in life all kind of come back to childhood stuff. And we don't really talk about oh, that. Oh, it always comes back it to childhood It does, though! Yeah. Um, was there anything that you learned about being alone as you were putting the book together? No, it was... I think maybe I... I was able to see how much I knew about it. Like, you know, there were all of these like sort of beautiful coincidences when um, I was putting the book together and um, I'd meet someone and they'd be like, I would talk about how I'd just traveled alone and they'd be like, oh, I've never traveled alone. And I was like, I've only traveled alone. And they were like, I never go to dinner alone. I'm like, I only go to dinner alone. <laughs> like just realizing like, oh, I really am kind of 
you know, having this difficult, challenging life has given me these like superpowers of like, I've spent a lot of time alone. Not having to, to be with yourself. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. earlier, you know, you talk a little bit about your relationship with your parents. You also talk about uh, sexual abuse. Um, what was it like to go back and kind of relive some of these tough experiences? Awful. As you're, awful. I'll Great. just stop you. One word. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, a lot of weeping. I mean, it wasn't great, but... I think it was just, I thought it was a story worth telling and, you know, and we're seeing so many of the things I talked about in the book. I thought this was really interesting um, coming up in the news. Like I talk about, you know, being 13 years old and dating someone who's 22 and you think that's cool. And it's like, we're seeing a lot of the time, like, no, actually that was incredibly problematic. That should not have happened. That is pedophilia. Like, I, no. I mean, it must have been fascinating to take the lens now. You know, you're someone who you've written uh, a lot about relationships and dating, and, and yeah. certainly taking that lens and then putting it back on those earlier experiences is very revealing. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, too. You know, if you look at, like, I've been online dating since I was, like, 12, 13, or whatever it is, you know, if you can call that dating. But, like, and then now it's like, I do a show called Tinder Live about online dating, and I've written <laughs> about sex and relationships. And But if you, you know, I think that's one of the interesting things. Like, I've always been interested in love and super romantic ideas and things like that. And now, you know, almost all I do is connected to love and relationships and dating. So now, do you sense. have uh, do you have a favorite essay from this book? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, it's so tough because they all hit such different beats. But it was really fun to write about being a cool punk rock teen living in her car. Um, <laughs> you know, the real jewel, if you will. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, just because that was such a weird time, like playing in a band with a bunch of like older men was so weird. And it's like, it's sad, but it was, it was funny and it was fun to write about. I mean, I think so much of it, I was revisiting different parts of myself and I loved writing about, you know, me as a little kid who was such a hopeless romantic and wanted to hear everyone's how we met stories and just seeing the parts of you that are like this now and have always been like that, I think are really cool to me. Yeah. I mean, speaking of this broader topic of being alone, um, a topic I deeply care about, and I think that you do too, is about okay. bi-plus <laughs> representation in the media. For and, sure, yeah. Uh, and sometimes it feels like there are so few uh, good figures, uh, yeah. you know, and, and characters aren't really fully realized. Um, no. You know, why <laughs> do you think we're still so stuck in a moment where representation is so bad? Maybe because we're not writing our own stories. I don't know. I feel like that's got to be it, you know? It's... It's, I don't know how many bi-plus people are in the writers' rooms, and like, for the record, like, I'm right here, just hire me. Um, <laughs> got one right here. <laughs> yeah, I'm right here, I'm right here, ready to work. I uh, got a resume and all. Um, but I think that's so much of it, you know? I, I, I think the stereotype, I think that's one of the things that, that excites me about the book as well, is that, you know, you'll see in the book that it's like, okay, yeah, I'm attracted to every gender, but like, I'm super romantic. I'm a I'm a relationship-centered person. And not that it's it's bad to be any other way, but we see so many bi-plus people pigeonholed as like super slutty and they can't choose. And it's like, oh, at any given room, I'm attracted to no one. Like it's not, you know, but you hear this thing. It's just like, oh, do you want to screw everyone in here? And I'm like, I want to have sex with no one I've met in the last <laughs> month. Like, you know, so I yeah. think... Just seeing things like that and just seeing, and one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to, when I wrote about relationships with men and I wrote about relationships with men, I wanted you to like forget that it was even a man or a woman mm. because they're both assholes. <laughs> so it's just like, like everybody is awful, yeah, so it doesn't uh -huh. really matter. A lot of these people just yeah. across the board, it doesn't matter the gender. Well, look, I got to ask you one more question um, yeah. before we go. And that is what advice do you have for people who are feeling alone? Yeah. Um, I would, one of the things I would say that I do is go to the internet. Um, it's good and bad, you know, um, but I think reaching out, like uh, tweeting and things like that has been something that's been 
wonderful for me and, and making internet friends. Like I think there's such a stigma against internet friends and like internet friends don't count that I think that's bullshit. I think that internet friends absolutely count. You know, if you have somebody who lives in Tacoma, Washington and you feel like you can really be yourself with them and really talk to them and you've never met them in person, like, yeah, it'd be great if you could meet in person. But I think it's beautiful to find connection wherever you can, even if it's at the grocery store or like someone in your yoga class and you like pass them a yoga block and they're like, oh, thank you. And like, you made some form of connection. Like Friendship over a yoga block. Yeah, just That's find it wherever you can get it because it's hard to find it in a deeper way. And just, if you can get little snacks of connection, yeah. binge on snacks. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, How to Be Alone is available for pre-order now and will be available everywhere November 6th. And up next, Stephanie sits down with John Batiste, so stay tuned. I'm here with award-winning jazz musician John Batiste, the house band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Thank you so much for joining me. Yes, indeed. Thanks for having me. So while I was getting ready this morning, I put your al new album, Hollywood Africans, on yes. Spotify, and it gave me such a good start to my morning. It was so soothing, mm. such a good vibe. Loved it. Oh, yeah. So why did you decide to name your album after Basquiat's famous painting? Well. I was studying him because I'm writing a Broadway musical about him right now. And for the last year, I've been studying his work. And that painting struck me. It's from 1983, and it has such a rich amount of information just layered into it. He's talking about consumerism. He's talking about art and the commodification of art. He's talking about the African-American diaspora and the entertainment industry and the innovations that a lot of the greats put into the world, but also they face so much oppression and marginalization, and how he's a part of that lineage, and um, how he's kind of breaking the chains in his generation at the time. There's so much that ties to my expression of art and the superpowers of jazz and blues and folk and all the stuff that's on the record. So I thought it was just a good way of framing it. I was already in that headspace, and I thought that he framed it very well in that painting and it's kind of talking about some similar things that um, the music that I was playing on this record talks about. Can you tell me a little bit about your musical? Yeah. You're still working on it, but can you give yes. us a little sneak peek? Okay, so uh, John Doyle is going to direct. He directed The Color Purple. He's an amazing, amazing director. Uh, you always gotta have a veteran around there. And then uh, the Basquiat Estate is giving me a lot of different works, I'll say. <laughs> that the the public hasn't seen of Jean-Michel and it's just a, it's a great experience to uh, delve into the work of an artist I've admired for so long. I can't say much about it other than that it's coming to Broadway and look out for it and we have a really good team and a lot of uh, inspiring, inspiring stories to draw from. Well that sounds absolutely incredible. You'll have to come back when it premieres on Broadway and give us more of a sneak peek. Oh, of course. <laughs> I, 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 I love writing music and this format is just, the possibilities are so exciting to me. Well, speaking of your music, your album does a lot of really cool things. You even do a cover of Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, yeah. How did you decide to do that? Well. I, I'm, I'm channeling the, the heroes, the, the great ancestors that I'm talking about of American music, but I'm also channeling my personal experience. And growing up as a kid, I played video games for hours and hours. And the music that you hear in the games um, becomes a part of your subconscious mind. And when you become a composer like myself, 
that was my first experience really digesting compositional material. Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, Final Fantasy VII, the soundtrack on that is amazing. It's just, it's just so many different games like that that I played for hours. And um, this album, I was just really channeling my experience as well, not thinking too hard about what songs um, should go on or not. Just really trying to channel a, a mood um, and create something that people could meditate to. And I always thought that that's, that melody has something to it. You just got to put it in the right context. I love that. Your, your music is so beautiful, and you can tell you draw from so many different inspirations. But you're also the band leader for Stephen Colbert's yes. How do you compose that music, and how do you decide how to play that show? It's all about the, the theme of the monologue and what's happening in the world that day. Um, that's the first half of the show. I try to make music that provides the right momentum and balance. My role really is just to give people a, a sense of um, joy and almost um, solace in the midst of a lot of the chaotic things that are happening in the world today. And then when the, the, the second half of the show happens, the guests are coming on. So I'm really trying to channel um, their energy and what may make them excited when they come on stage or kind of paint a picture musically, even if it's a subtle nod to things that are just like inside baseball that people would not even realize except for like that one guy on Twitter. <laughs> but you know, it's just a, um, it, it's a game for me really of, of um, framing things as they happen. Sometimes it's spontaneous, sometimes I know they're coming. And um, oftentimes I'll compose music or draw from things from video game music to classical music to um, top 40 to, I mean, to folk music from different parts of the world. It's, it's like a, a nice puzzle that I put together every morning and then we do the show in the afternoon and I watch it at night sometimes. It's cool to see how it came together, you know, it's great. That is so incredibly fascinating to me how you can write music or perform music to go along with how the monologue is. So like how would you say like a crazy Trump tweet monologue? How do you write music for something like that? Well, sometimes it's a reference, like um, when um, they talk about the alleged uh, tape. Mm -hmm. uh, we know what you're talking about here yeah. at BuzzFeed News. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's a Thelonious Monk composition entitled uh, Trinkle Tinkle. And the melody is... <laughs> it's like a, he's, he's basically composed something that imitates like a faucet that was trinkling in his house or something like that. And I'll play that, I'll slip that in like, and I'll, I'll slip it in, in maybe like a one or two second line from, that, from the song that quotes the melody. Uh, or it'll be something where, you know, things like that. I'll, I'll play Beatles, um, uh, Golden Slumbers. Uh, <laughs> it's just like, I don't, it's, for me a lot of it is in the moment, free association, but then things, that I know that are coming, I'll have the band involved and it won't just be the piano, it'll be something that we rehearse or even sometimes with the guests, they'll wanna sing a song, we'll be talking backstage and they'll say, you know, I'm gonna start talking about this and I might just break in the song, um, follow me. I'm like, yeah, I got you. You know, it's just, it's fun. You have to be spontaneous, really. That is so incredibly hilarious and so interesting, and that sounds so fun. Do you think people bring off different energies when they come on set that you try to match in your music? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Like, Tiffany Haddish came on the other day, and her energy is um, it's, it's a massive 
um, beautiful, charismatic energy. So the, the music has to match that. Or, you know, the, there was a great show with, um, with Joe, uh, President, Vice President Joe Biden when he came on and he was talking about his personal history and he became very vulnerable and the music has to match that moment. You can't come out of that and be playing like, celebrate good time. You know, that don't work. So <laughs> I'm always in tune to energy. I'm just in general in life, I'm very in tune to energy. So it's, it's not a stretch for me to have a plan and then just scrap it and completely go in a different direction if the energy goes that way. That is so cool. Okay, so I have one final question for yeah. you. On the show this morning, we were talking about how excited we are for Solange's new album. Oh, are you excited? About that today, yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's amazing. She's one of the people who um, I really admire out there. She's doing a lot of really creative things. She has elements of um, jazz in her music, elements of all of the different great um, strains of American music, but draws from so many different things from around the world, art. Um, fashion. It's, it's, it's amazing to see somebody like that out here. We're all waiting, right? Yeah, we waiting. Let's get it. Come on, where you at? Come on, Solange. Come on, Solange. <laughs> We're all waiting here at AM2DM. Well, thank you so much for joining us, John. Hollywood Africans is out now. I would totally recommend you all listen to it while you work today. It's so incredibly nice and soothing. Up next, I'm going to get the latest on BuzzFeed's new book club. I'm so excited about this, so stay tuned. Here's a week from BuzzFeed News. Love to read but have trouble deciding which book to curl up with? No worries, we've got you covered. Sign up for BuzzFeed Books' new book club. I am so excited about this new project. Joining me now to discuss it is BuzzFeed Books editor Ariana Rebellini. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I kind of had an inkling this was coming, but I think it is such a great idea. It's such an amazing way to expand upon the amazing section that you run why did we decide to start a book club here at BuzzFeed News? I mean, so we have like one of, I mean, I'm biased, but one of the best audiences, group of readers on the internet in the world. And we keep really in close contact with them through our social accounts, um, our newsletter especially. And it's something that uh, they have wanted. They always want a little more access to the writers. They want more communication and they just want to get closer to the books. And so we were like, well, this is going to be a great way to choose one book to focus on, one new book that we're really excited about. We love promoing um, exciting authors, new authors, just cool things coming up. And this is a way to really dive into them and spread out that, um, the excitement about one book and, and really create a community around it. Book clubs are such an amazing way to meet people, get community, and I think what I think is so cool about this book club is you can participate anywhere. You know, you don't have to go to a physical meeting. Can you talk a little bit more about how it's going to work, what people can expect? Sure. So basically, this will be an online world. Um, we will have you sign up kind of like as you sign up for a newsletter, and so with that sign up, you get access to the Facebook group, which you'll have to click on to and join. Um, and that's where we'll kind of have month-long discussions. So I'll be moderating that. We'll have, you know, discussion questions. We'll have threads for favorite quotes, you know, like OMG moments, just kind of thoughts we have while we're reading, have good discussion ideally. And um, we'll also have in pop-ins from the author herself, himself, you know, to come and uh, get some exclusive content from them. It sounds so cool. It sounds like such a great community if everyone participates. Yeah. So what is the first book? The first book is Family Trust by Kathy Wang. It's so fun. It's like... Someone described it, I'm forgetting who, but described it as Crazy Rich Asians meets uh, The Nest. 
So it's a great kind of family drama, but also in Silicon Valley, you know, the father, this patriarch character is dying and everyone, he's kind of hinted at having this big kind of uh, legacy, this big wealth that he's amassed and his whole family's like, well, are we getting any of that? So uh, you it's- bring a, me out a piece of that. Yeah, like how much and can we just sign the paper? Um, but it's kind of just, you know, success um, as an immigrant family and second generation and uh, what you're kind of working for and what is expected of you. And it's so much fun. It's so beautiful, yeah. So I've talked about this a little bit on the show, but I'm in a book club where the theme is murder mysteries with female protagonists. We've tried to do a little more serious books and it did not go over with, well with the group. What can we <laughs> expect theme-wise from these books? So we're really open. Um, we are focusing on literary fiction to start, um, especially novels, probably you know some literary nonfiction, but literary fiction is something that our readers have identified as what they like, but that means a lot of different things to different people. So. We're gonna be in ongoing conversation, uh, seeing what people are liking, what they're reacting to, what they aren't. But I think if you follow BuzzFeed books and see the type of books we cover, um, you won't be very surprised <laughs> yeah, yeah, by what we get. Uh, it's, choose. It's so exciting. And I know we have so many loyal followers here at am to dm and I would encourage all of you to try it out. I think it's gonna be really, really fun. Yeah. So one more time, how do people join? Uh, if you go to BuzzFeed, uh, <laughs> buzzfeednews.com slash books, you will see the post. Um, or you can just search BuzzFeed Book Club on Facebook. So exciting. Yeah. Mariana, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. Up next, Alex and I respond to your tweets. All right, what a show. I loved talking to John. He's a genius. He was terrific. Yeah. Yeah. So great. But we have to get down to the most craziest debate on the timeline I've ever seen. Polarizing. Triscuits tearing people versus apart. non Triscuits. Okay, so we talked about Triscuits this morning and I agreed that I don't really like them, but PixMaven tweeted, I love Triscuits. Also, I seem to need more new wicker furniture too often. And she also tweeted, I asked her to defend her love of Triscuits because I said, I don't get it. And she said, they are salty, they are crunchy. Their texture holds melted cheese extremely well. Also, they are the polar opposite of wheat thins, which are just glorified cardboard bits. Okay, uh, you're gonna tell me that a wheat thin is better than a Triscuit? I could eat wheat thins. That's just plain. not true. Wheat thins are freaking delicious. Personally, I am more of a Stacy's pita chip kind of gal. Yeah. I like the ones with Parmesan on them. That's so true. I neither I, Triscuit nor wheat thin. I know. At the end of the day. I feel like I have to force us to move on though, because I could talk about this forever. I love cheese plates. If you want to follow me on Instagram, you can see all of the cheese plates <laughs> I always like to make on a weekend. A shameless plug about your cheese plates. True. They're good. What can I say? Regarding girls saying they want to be one of the boys, one of my biggest pet peeves, CD Martinez said, so many weekend so many women take this idea into their 30s. I'm proud to be one of the girls. Me too. Amen to that. I'm also proud to be one of the girls. And I think that this, you know, taps into that idea that we equate coolness with being one of the guys. And uh, that's just, that's not the case. I'm glad that we can unpack these forms of speech that we accept as normal uh, when in fact they have a completely different undertone to them. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not for that. I, I love my girlfriends. I'm a girl's girl. I don't, I don't really have a lot of guy friends. I say, be whatever kind of girl you want to be. Exactly, exactly. All types of girls are good. <laughs> well, thank you to our guests, Ariana Rebellini, John Batiste, Lane Morley, Sandra Villa, Eliza Shapiro, and Aram Rostin. Okay, unfortunately, I mean, uh, happily, Said and Isaac will finally be back tomorrow. Alex, it has been such a pleasure it hosting has been so with much you. Fun. And I really hope we get to do it again soon. But the so guys too. will be back, and that'll be exciting as well. The Triscuit debate will rage beyond our time here. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>